Father, I do quickly just pray again that you help me say the things that should be said from your word. And let your word breathed out by your spirit have its desired effect, your desired effect upon our hearts and draw us closer to Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. Well, it's been my belief for a long time that the scariest kind of evil in this world is evil with dust on it. Really old evil. Evil that has had no better way to spend its time than to just watch and learn and get smarter and stronger. Which is actually kind of why I don't really watch horror films. Uh, Horror films can really only be enjoyed if you think that old evil is just a symbol, that it's just a myth, that it's just something that can fright you in an entertaining way because when it's all done, you can kind of explain away the whole experience as just a fairy tale. But if half the stuff depicted in today's sickeningly massive horror horror film industry could be real in any way, people ought to be scared out of their minds. Ten years ago, there was a novel that was written that kind of explored these very issues. It was an international bestseller. It was called The Historian. And the novel is actually about three historians, not just one. And the first of these historians is the oldest. He's he's a tenured professor of medieval history at Oxford. And after taking possession of a really old and mysterious book... Professor Rossi becomes really interested in the real-life medieval ruler, 15th century ruler named Vlad Dracula III of Wallachia, which is now present-day Romania. And this man was the real-life tyrant behind all the vampire myths and stories. And as Professor Rossi digs deeper into history to find out more about Vlad, weird things start to happen. Things start to go missing Weird shadows pop up unexpectedly. There's unexplained and threatening strangers that begin to show up in his life. Finally, Professor Rossi, he disappears and no one knows where he went. And the only one who knew anything about what Professor Rossi was doing was his favorite student and protege, another historian named Paul. And Paul begins the quest to find his missing professor and to uncover some of the mysteries about Vlad III. But as he does so, he suffers the same kind of frightening experiences that only seem to get worse. And in fact, now people are starting to die in mysterious ways. And even scarier yet, maybe for Paul, is as he reluctantly begins to share his stories and his experiences with his daughter, who's another student of history, frightening supernatural events start to happen in her life too. Because it seems that Vlad III might not be so dead after all. <laughs> right? But actually kind of what makes the story so compelling is not the horror elements, and really there's not that many in this book. It's really kind of more of a suspense mystery with just maybe a touch of fright. It's not that scary. But really what's so compelling about it is how real and how historical, how true to life the author can make it seem, even with what little bit of elements she includes. Throughout the story, all three of these historians who are very secular people, who are way too in love with science and reason to have any time for the supernatural, 
You can watch them as they begin to realize more and more to their horror that they are coming face to face with a real personal evil. Evil that's been around long enough to collect some dust prints. And although they become more and more convinced that this evil knows them, is watching them, and is stronger than them, they just can't help themselves. They're drawn to it. They become more obsessed with an evil that's also their greatest fear at the same time. At one point, the daughter, who's the main character of the story, she actually says, As a historian, I have learned that, in fact, not everyone who reaches back into history can survive it. And it is not only reaching back that endangers us. Sometimes history reaches inexorably forward for us with its shadowy claw. In other words, the historian is a reflection of what's happened to all of us. And although in our arrogant and self-assured and modern times, hardly anyone would believe it anymore, a personal and ancient and very evil power continues to reach forward with its shadowy claw from Genesis chapter 3. As we read from the passage at the beginning of the surface, at the service, Satan, who's, who's the great enemy of God, uses deception to overpower us in the garden, to make us slaves to his will. But we're still, like the characters in the historian, we in the garden begin to become truly attracted to him. We begin to act like him more ourselves, to want what he wants. To love what he loves. In verses 8 through 13, as soon as the man and the woman eat from the tree, they begin doing something that characterizes all of us now all the time. Like we said in our confession, they cover themselves up. They hide. They pretend. They begin to live lives, in other words, of deception. When God asks the man and the woman what they have done, they blame others intending to deceive. Another way to say it is that they really kind of show that they're already under the serpent's power. They begin to show that they've lost the perfect image of God that they were created in. And now the image that they have appears more and more serpentine. They now use the serpent's techniques in escaping and distorting truth. And this is, of course... What Jesus said to the very religious and conservative Pharisees, didn't he? He said, you are children, you are seed, you are offspring, you are in the image of your father, the devil. Because you lie and deceive just as he did, because he was a liar from the beginning. Adam and Eve play the victim card, which is just a more advanced way of blaming And all blaming is really just an attempt to lay responsibility at God's feet, which is the true voice of Satan anyway. I wanted to be you, and I should have been you. But now I am what I am, and I've done what I've done, and it's your fault. That's the devil's voice, and now it's coming out of the mouths of Adam and Eve, and it comes out of ours. In Genesis chapter 3 The devil draws up his battle lines. He knows that because the man and the woman have disobeyed God, death is now in his power, as Hebrews chapter 2 says. 
In Genesis 3, the devil slithers into the only paradise any of us have ever known, and he turns it into a war zone. And what's ironic is that because we're so deceived, as those who've been deceived by him so long ago, we do the opposite of that with Advent. We do the opposite of that with Christmas. We take what is a spiritual battle zone at the Nativity and Jesus' birth, and we try to turn it into a capitalistic paradise, a sentimental moment to boost retail sales and create great memories with hot cider and frosted window panes and twinkling lights. And hear hear me right, don't get me wrong, this is not going to be one of those grinchy Advent sermons that tells you how bad and awful you are for buying presents for your children or your loved ones. It's not what I'm saying. But it's important to realize that we often miss the fact that Jesus is presented more as a child of war in the Bible than a child of coziness. Christmas doesn't start at the manger. Christmas starts with a child cooing at a venomous snake. Christmas starts in Genesis 3, verse 15 to be more precise. And the battle lines are drawn up around one very important term, one really important piece of theology in verse 15, the word offspring, the word seed. After cursing the serpent to complete humiliation and total defeat in verse 14, God says something very interesting in verse 15. He says that the serpent's defeat isn't going to happen immediately. It's not going to be an immediate thing. It's not going to just happen in one event. Instead, the serpent's defeat is going to take place through a very long war filled with many battles. God says that from this point forward, there will be a state of war between the seed, the offspring of the woman, and the seed, the offspring of the serpent. That the serpent will repeatedly strike the heel of the offspring, of her offspring, and that her offspring will repeatedly crush the serpent's head. And I think it's important for us to understand right here, you need to know that there are are three ways that the Bible develops meaning around the idea of the promised seed. First, it can refer to an immediate descendant, someone who's going to be born in the very next generation. Second, it can refer to kind of a collective large group of descendants. And then thirdly, seed can refer to a single kind of distant descendant who's going to be born a long time from now. And as the narrative of Genesis and kind of the rest of the Bible play it out, it's clear that all three of these meanings are here in chapter 3, verse 15. For both the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. In my view, I think Abel was a partial fulfillment of the promise. He was clearly a promised seed of Eve a faithful believer and worshiper of God. And I think Satan saw it that way too, which is why he sought to corrupt Cain, and he did so. And Cain proved to be a seed of the serpent. He didn't live in faith before God. He wasn't a crusher of serpents. He was a crusher of men, a murderer of his brother. And Genesis 4 demonstrates that most of those who descended from Cain continued to be offspring of the serpent wanderers moving further away from Eden, not repenting but bragging about their violence and their sexual immorality and their murder. 
And Eve is happy when Seth is born because in her her words at the end of chapter 4, God has appointed for me another offspring, a seed, instead of Abel because Cain killed him. And it's from Seth that we get Noah and eventually Abraham and eventually all of Israel. And the nation of Israel was to be a collective offspring, a seed for God. But so often throughout her history, she proved to be unfaithful as a nation giving herself over to the idols of the surrounding nations. And so within Israel, God raised up a more specific seed. He selected one tribe, Judah. And then within Judah, he selects a family within Judah, that of Boaz and Ruth, that of Jesse, that of David. And to David and all the prophets after David, God promised that one very specific and singular seed would come from David's line. You can look at me if you want. If you have your Bibles with you, you can turn to Daniel chapter 7. If not, that's fine. You can just listen. But in Daniel chapter 7, Daniel gets a picture of what's going to happen with this promised seed. There's a lot going on here that I'm not going to explain tonight. But you just need to know that Daniel's in the middle of receiving a vision, much like the kind of vision that John is seeing in the book of Revelation that we've been studying on Sunday mornings. And he's just watched four beasts rise up and receive powerful world-ruling kingdoms. And then he's watched those beasts die and disappear. And then in verse 13, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days who is God and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, that all peoples and nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. And as for me, Daniel, my spirit within me was anxious, and the visions of my head alarmed me. I approached one of those who stood there and asked him the truth concerning all of this, and so he told me and made known to me the interpretation of these things." These great four beasts are four kings who shall arise out of the earth, but the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever and ever and ever. This passage is about the Son of Man approaching the throne. And what's such good news about this? I'll tell you, the really great news about this is that the Son of Man is human. He's not just another one of the mighty angels that Daniel has seen in his vision so far. He's the seed of the woman. He is there to help fulfill the promise given to the woman all the way back in Genesis 3.15. And what else is good news? That he never dies. He never dies. The kingdoms before his are burned and destroyed... The rulers before him are dead and their dominions have been taken away. But this news is way better than just kind of the typical Disney princess ending where the good guys live happily ever after. Because for the Son of Man to live forever, it can only really mean one thing. That the one who has the power of death, the serpent, has been defeated. 
This son of man is the ultimate fulfillment of the promise to Eve because he is human of her seed and offspring. But he is also the ultimate serpent crusher because the serpent doesn't get the last jab with him as he has gotten it with everyone else. All the other rulers ended their days with a serpent's deadly bite in their heel, but not this person Daniel sees. Not this son of man. This coming king will always rule over a kingdom that never ends, and it's only possible if the serpent has been turned under the dust forever. And this is what Christmas and Advent season are about. God the Son... God of very God who shares all deity and all attributes of divinity with the Father and with the Spirit becoming a son of man. Becoming not just one of the offspring of Eve, but the specific, the singular promised seed of Eve that would fulfill the promise to crush the serpent's head. It's about God looking at the battle lines that Satan drew in the garden and then taking the war to a whole new level. As he fights and he wins the most important battle. God the Son. Taking on human nature in union with his divine nature. The miracle of the incarnation. And then he offers his heel. He turns his heel and he offers it to the serpent. For a bite. And he dies. He dies our death. He suffers our death. And then he rises again and then he steps out of the tomb and he crushes the devil's head for good. That's what Christmas is about. That's what Advent is about. And as much as Western culture has made it about the lust of the eyes and the gluttony of the flesh and the boastful pride of accomplishment, it's actually about defeating the one who deceived us into grabbing for those things in the first place. Way back in the garden. It's about defeating the one who still wants to reach forward with his claws, in the words of the historian, into our present, into our future. We just sang about it. God rest you, merry gentlemen, let nothing you dismay. Remember Christ our Savior was born on Christmas Day, and here comes the military part, to save us all from Satan's power when we had gone astray. That's what it's about. In the third verse, he's going to say, to free all those who trust in him from Satan's power and might. And this is the best news of all. It's the best news of all. It doesn't get any better than this. And yet, it's not going to be the news that I end with you tonight. I'm not going to end it there because there's another piece of good news in Daniel 7. It's the last verse. It's verse 18. The Son of Man isn't the only one who lives forever and reigns forever. But along with him are the saints of the Most High. Along with him are the saints of the Most High. The Apostle Paul, he knows this, which is why he says to the Galatians in chapter 3, verse 26, he says, For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's seed. 
Abraham's offspring. You are the true offspring and seed of the woman if you have Abraham's faith in Abraham's Savior. Heirs according to the promise. And because Jesus was the promised seed, we are in him by faith, which means that we are promised seeds collectively too. And there are all sorts of applications for this. There are all sorts of ways in which this has true and concrete effects for our lives. But for the sake of time, I'm just going to end with one. God's promise in Genesis 3.15 means that all those who identify with the promised seed of the woman, they're going to experience suffering. We will experience the serpent's bite on our heel just like the Christ child did. Even before his own suffering and death at the cross, Jesus knew the serpent's bite. Even when he lost his earthly father, Joseph, who he probably lost at an early age, he would lose more friends before his own death, probably more family members too. And many of you who are here tonight, I've been thinking about this, going through my mind, how many of us here tonight And many of us who are part of our fellowship that maybe couldn't be here tonight for various reasons, but how many of us in our church have lost parents, have lost children, have lost grandparents and siblings in just the last few years, spouses? And it can make Advent painful, not just joyful, because you're remembering painful things, not just joyful things. And even though Advent is about the battle lines between God and the devil, you need to understand that the purpose for Advent, God's God's intention, his reason for Advent is for the peace that waits on the other side of the war. That's where he's going. That's where he's taking us. He's not a God who loves war. He's just a God that wins them to secure peace for his people. And that's where he's going. As seeds of Christ, enduring the suffering of the devil and sin and death, we endure in this life. As Paul says, by faith in our victorious champion. Because we all recognize something else about seeds. Seeds only truly come alive in fullness on the other side of struggle and death. Seeds are planted in the ground, but they don't stay there. And by faith in these promises of God for us, even though pain and loss and death have occurred and we go through it, we demonstrate the power of God to gather for himself a people who are not his out of a desire for self-gratification and pleasure. We're not following him as though we're chasing some truck that's going down the street and it goes over a bump every now and then and goodies and toys come out the back of it and we scurry around and pick it up. That's not how we're following our God. That's not how God has drawn him to ourselves. We don't use God to means, to a means of, as a means to another end. That's American religion and that's American Christmas. But that's not Christian Christmas. We're his for something much, much greater, much infinitely greater. 
We're His out of a desire for Him. He's it. He is the end, not a means to an end. And then when we demonstrate this by faith, we continue to deal blow after blow to the head of the serpent and show and prove and demonstrate that we are seeds united to our Savior. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your son, the seed of the woman who was the promised blessing through Abraham, who was the promised king that would come from David. We thank you for him, for in him we move and have our being. In him we breathe. In him we have life, abundant life. Father, I pray for all of us tonight that during this season, whether it be a difficult one, whether it be a joyful one, whether it be filled with hard memories and pains, or maybe it's filled with especially sweet moments of delight with family and friends and church, whether, whatever it might be for all of us, you would help us not lose sight of that on one side or the other. Let us not lose sight of the victory of your Son either because of our hardship or because of our idolatry. Let us instead be drawn into a deeper worship and a deeper love for him as we come to a greater grasp of his love for us. Do this for us by the power of your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.